I hope you have your Bible with you, and if so, I ask you or invite you to open it to the book of First Thessalonians. We're going to be at the very, or almost at the very end of the book of First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to read verses 15 through 22 this morning, and I am fully aware that there probably are not a whole lot of churches around the country this morning that aren't doing some specific message for Father's Day, and I'm one of those weirdos who's not, so I'm sorry about that. At least I am consistently weird because I'm pretty sure I also kept out of step with the norm on Mother's Day, so you can just know that you have a weird pastor. You already knew that, didn't you? That would not have been a good time for amens to come, but it's fine. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 15, we are wrapping up our study of this letter, and I believe, Lord willing, after today, we're going to have one more message to finish it out. We'll see where we get to, though. Follow along carefully. We're going to start by reading the text this morning. It's the best place to start, get it cemented in our minds, and then we're going to just kind of walk through the text and see what the Lord wants to tell us this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 15, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. God, thank you for your word this morning. It is from you. Your Holy Spirit has inspired these words that we're reading this morning. I thank you that they've been preserved through the ages we're, of course, not reading them in original this morning, God, but your message has been preserved, and we thank you for that. We treat it as the most important thing we've read this morning, God. We treat it as the thing that we ought to give our utmost attention and care and respect to. Not just so that we can spout off or say what the Bible says, but so that your living word may be active inside of us, changing us controlling us through the Holy Spirit as you illuminate your word to us through the Holy Spirit. In keeping with the text this morning, God, it would be, it would be most appropriate that I and we together as a body of Christ this morning would pray this morning that your Holy Spirit be here revealing to us what he wants to reveal to us, changing in us what he desires to change in us, encouraging or strengthening in us what he desires to encourage or strengthen within us, so that you may be God and we may be your servants, that we would not quench your spirit this morning, God. Thank you. Thank you for the ways that you speak, even outside of my mouth, but certainly what is coming out of my mouth, God, I put under your control this morning, asking you to share with us out of your heart from your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we started, I had a message entitled the very same thing, concluding exhortations. We are at the end of the letter and it seems again, I'm just going to say this again, it seems again that, that Paul is just sort of rapid fire getting as many little exhortations in as he can. He's not, he's not giving long treaties with these things. He's just sort of listing this, 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 bam, bam, bam. But I want you to again be reminded or see that we've covered a lot of ground. The heart of the end of chapter three, all of chapter four, the first part of chapter five was Paul's big 
thrust to help us to grow in our love for each other, to be pure and holy before God. And in that way, when those two things are taking place, our love for each other and ourselves pure and holy before God, that we are ready for the return of Christ. That we're prepared for when Christ will return, come back to us and find a bride that is purified, that is waiting, that is demonstrating what it looks like to be the bride of Christ. And I submit to you that these concluding sort of rapid fire exhortations that are coming at the end are actually Paul's way of giving some, some flesh to what it means to be ready, what it looks like to be holy and pure, what it looks like to love each other and to be a bride that's ready. So it's not just sort of like he's, I've made my point and I've got a little bit of space. I'm going to just sort of fill in a couple of hurried little things that are random things. He's helping us to see if you want to know, if you came out of, you know, uh, chapter 5 verse 11 and you came out of that saying, well, what exactly should it look like for us to be together as a church and, and be ready for the return of Christ? I think we're reading them in verses 12 on to the end of the chapter now. So here we are again today. And there actually are a couple of ways, and I wasn't sure which way to do it, but um, there are a couple of ways we could move through the text this morning. Uh, I, I hope you know that, by the way. I hope you know that I, I could probably preach through this letter again next year, and it wouldn't always come out the exact same way as it did this year. Um, there's different ways to move through the text. I've chosen today because I see a parallel in verse 15, and in verses 21 and 22, I've chosen to use them as sort of rails for us today. The parallel is that both of those verses are talking about good and evil. So again, on the back side of your, of your bulletin, if you have a bulletin with you today, on the back side of that is a handout. If, you're, if you would like to take notes, if you'd like to be, follow along that way, you can. If you don't like to, if you just want to pay attention or just whatever, uh, that's okay too. But I'm giving you uh, sort of all the, the texts that I'm going to refer to, at least that I know I'm going to refer to going into the message this morning. So both of those verses, verse 15 and then verse 21, 22, they talk about good and evil. Verse 15 says, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And then at the end of the, of the text we're studying this morning, uh, we should test everything, hold fast to what is good and abstain from every form of evil. So using those as rails and saying, I think we should look at the text in this morning. Those are sort of, I don't know if I should call them this, I, but, but they're sort of boundaries for us, meaning that the emphasis of the text we're going to find in the middle, not on the outsides. It's, it's pushing us into the middle. But let's give it some attention to these outside rails, so to speak, that we have. Let me put verse 15 up there for you. See to it that no one repays anyone evil for evil. What do we do when the evil that's in the world around us begins to push in against us? How should we respond when the sinfulness of other people living around us and the sinfulness that's present just in the communities we live in, the families we live in, the homes we live in, what do we do when that begins to encroach upon our territory, so to speak? Begins to push in into our way of thinking and way of doing and begins to have an effect and most likely a negative effect. You know, this is a question actually that the Bible answers in a lot of different places. I don't know if you know this or not, but the Bible answers this question in a lot of different places. And not surprisingly, particularly in the New Testament teachings, it's always answered the same way. You could go back to Jesus who set the foundation for it when he gave what we today call the Sermon on the Mount. He said, if you're wondering what to do when the sinfulness of other people begins to affect your life negatively, here's what he said. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In other words, whatever someone did to you, you should do it back. 
But I say to you, Jesus says to us, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And of course, to the very next section, which I'm not going to read for you, he talks about loving those people that are our enemies. This is not um, probably lining up very well with standard human teaching of how we operate and when people begin to do things that negatively affect us. Paul wrote very similar sounding words. I'm going to read them for you this morning. When he wrote his letter to the Romans, again, just helping you see that Paul is being consistent. The answer we're getting from Scripture is being consistent. In Romans chapter 12, verse 17, he says this, almost word for word, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. And he ends that section of teaching by saying, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He's bring it back to that same discussion we just started here in 1 Thessalonians, good and evil. What happens when good and evil are, are being put together? Now let's look at another church leader, early church leader. We can look at Peter. Peter wrote some similar sounding things when he wrote his, uh, his letters, his testaments. In 1 Peter, he reflects on the person of Jesus himself. So he's looking at what Jesus was like, and he says in chapter 2 of 1 Peter that Jesus left you and I an example to follow. Here's the example. I'll just read it in verse 21. For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Here's the example. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, when evil came and bumped up into him, if I can put that in my phrase that I was using earlier, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's God in heaven, of course. And then just a few verses later in chapter 3, then he would come out with his, his encouragement to us. In chapter 3 of 1 Peter, in verse 9, he says, again, very similar sounding words, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. In other words, be like Jesus was. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I am fairly confident. I won't say I'm sure, but I am fairly confident that pretty much every person in this room this morning, if you've been paying any attention at all at any part of your life, if you're above a certain age at least anyway, you have heard those verses from Scripture before. You're aware of Jesus' teaching. You're aware of Paul's affirmation of Jesus' teaching. You're aware of Peter's affirmation of Jesus' teaching. I also am fairly confident that there have been plenty of times when you have been faced with a decision in your own life of what you will do when someone else's sinfulness affects you in a very negative way. 
I would further be fairly confident that what you actually did in some other situations don't match the words I just read. I can say that with great confidence because I can look at my own life and recognize the push, the pull, the tension that is there because that's not how I want to react. That's not what I want to do when someone else's sinfulness affects me. If we are to hear Paul's words back in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, that his prayer was that the Lord may make us increase and abound in love for each other and be, have our hearts established blameless in holiness before God so that we're ready for Jesus to come. These are the kinds of things, the kinds of decisions. You know, we can get so caught up with all kinds of other stuff that's going on. These kinds of nitty-gritty things that you will face, quite likely, maybe today yet, tomorrow, sometime this week, what am I going to do when someone else's sinfulness affects me in a negative way? How am I going to respond? Forget your political stance. Forget your concern about whatever else is going on. Forget your, all your other agendas. Forget everything else you're anxious about. Spend some time figuring out, am I able to obey what Scripture teaches? That I not repay evil for evil, but I seek to do good to everyone. Now, I told you the ending verses are also addressing good and evil. I don't know if you know this, or you, I'm suspecting you probably don't, because they say good and evil in both places, but it's actually not the same word being used both times. In fact, none of the words are the same. The good and the evil in the first verse in verse 15 are not the same words as the good and the evil in verses 21 and 22. In this verse we just covered, they're the words that refer to things that are intrinsically good or evil, like just the makeup of them is good or evil. When someone, when evil comes onto your doorstep, when, when evil happens to you, you don't repay it with evil, but you give, you return it with something good. And most of the verses that I read to you use the same word because they're about the same subject, right? When someone says, does something bad to you, you don't do something bad back to them, but you love on them. You do something good. In the second section, in verses 21 and 22, those words, those words are both words that have to do with things that the effect of them, the outcome of them, is good or evil. In other words, they're not intrinsically like good or evil themselves, but the outcome is good or evil. We should test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. So let me just put that verse up here. Test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. This time he's talking about things that the effect of them. When I do them, the effect is either something good or something bad. Now, one more note before I jump into this thing. In the ESV here, the translation I'm preaching from this morning and using and use almost used every Sunday, um, verse 21 starts off with the word but. And when it does that, it connects it back very clearly to verse 20, which says, don't despise prophecies but test everything. The problem is, in the original Greek, the word but is not there. So I'm choosing to use it as a standalone parallel to the opening verse that we read. See to it that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but seek to do good. He ends his little section here by saying, test everything, just standalone. By the way, not that you're not supposed to test prophecies. Don't, hear me, don't get me wrong about that. It just moves it to a much bigger scope than just prophecy. Does that make sense? Test everything. Test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Put everything to the test. 
every action, every belief, everything. Test it. See what the outcome of it will be. Hang on. Hold fast. Hold on to what is good. And the word abstain is the word to hold oneself off of. So it has a form of the word to hold, echo in the Greek, E-C-H-O, has the, the, both those words, hold fast to what is good, hold fast, and abstain. Both of those have the same root in the Greek. So hang on, you're testing everything, hang on to what's good, what the effect is good, what makes good things come out, hold yourself off of or let go of the things that the effect is not good, leads you away. How do we test things? That's a great question. How do we test things then? If we're supposed to test everything, how do we test things? Once again, I'm going to go back to Jesus who lays a foundation for us. I'm going to go back to the Gospel of Matthew again, this time to chapter 7. Interestingly, he's talking about prophets here, prophecy here as well. In chapter 7, verse 15, here's what Jesus says. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them you ready? Here's your test. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus said we can test things by the outcomes, by the fruits that come out of that. In other words, it may sound great, it may sound biblical, it may sound like God is doing great things, but check out to see what the fruit of it is. Does it result in things that make you more holy and more righteous, more prepared for Jesus' return, more caring, more loving and kind, more patient? Is the fruit of the Spirit on display, or does it lead you away from that? Again, we tend to make things really difficult and convoluted, and sometimes it's not actually that difficult or convoluted. You know, I've found in my own life, I'll just give you, I'll just give you a moment of honesty because I think it's helpful to help you see how you may fall trapped in the same thing. I found in my own life, there are lots of times when I think, I, I have a difficult time maybe with testing something. I'm not sure, well, maybe good, maybe bad. And in the end, I realized all it was was that my heart really wanted the one thing which is why I had a hard time. That when I, once I let go of that, it was pretty obvious. The end result, the fruit that was coming out was not good. Therefore, I should abstain. I should hold myself off from that. Now, Luke, when he wrote the, the book of Acts, he gives us another way to test things. He's talking about in, in Acts, let me, let me just flip this so I get the verse exactly right. He's talking about when Paul is going around and preaching, and he's teaching the Jews. And in Acts chapter 17, he says, he came to this place called Berea, and it says that these Jews, Acts chapter 17, verse 11, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Interesting, because that's the letter he's writing to people, people he's writing to in this, that we're studying this morning. They were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, and here's what they did. Examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So another way of testing things, friends, is this, is the Bible, is to see, is what I'm hearing, is what I'm being taught, is an action or a belief? Can I find it here? Can I support it from here? Or does this actually speak against it? Test everything, hold on to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now, I want to just make one more quick note. I want to keep on going here because we're still on the outside rails. 
But one quick note there in the ESV here, it says uh, abstain from every form of evil. I think I have it up, up on here. Some translations say the appearance of evil. And I want to just clarify a bit because the word does not mean uh, just like any resemblance. It really means the shape or the form of something. So if the outcome really is bad or evil or leading away from Christ. That word, by the way, the word that's used there for form is only used like five or six times in the New Testament. It refers to, you know, like when the Holy Spirit came down in the form of a dove on Jesus when he was baptized. That's the same word. Um, When his face was changed on the Mount of Transfiguration, that's the same word. When Paul says we live by faith and not by sight, that's the word form right there. by, By the actual by the actual things, the shape. So maybe just to clarify, because I think sometimes that, that gets used a little bit in a way that, in my opinion, is a little bit heavy-handed sometimes, like we have to stay away from every appearance of evil. Do you know how difficult that is? Because sinful people will make everything evil. Did you catch that? Sinful people will make everything evil. I, I honestly, I think it's impossible to stay away from the appearance of evil, from any just like resemblance of evil from every resemblance of evil. Maybe I should clarify, make that, that. It's the form. If it's actually resulting in something evil, we should abstain from that. Now, those are the outside rails. I don't want to get hung up on that stuff, hopefully. But I want to bring us to this because I think this is what Paul is really pressing us in towards. He's, he's, he's focusing us inward. We're going to go right to the very middle and then we're going to use the, the little uh, exhortations he's got there on the outside to bring us to this place. He says in the end, I think is what he's trying to get us to, is that when we have evil pressing in against us, I forgot to say this, but on the second, the verses 21 and 22 is what about the evil that's within here, that's right here, me, right? Like the first one was about what happens when people do it to me. The second one, when we hold, we test things and hold fast to what's good and abstain from evil, that's the stuff that's in, with like me actually, what I'm doing, not what everyone else is doing, but what I'm doing. That's why it's the two rails. In the middle of that, he's exhorting us to say, our lives should be focused on giving thanks in all circumstances. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Is it possible? I know you've asked this question. I know you've wrestled with it. If you've not asked it in this way, I know you've wrestled with it. Because we as humans have from the beginning and will until Christ returns. Is it possible for us despite whatever is happening, no matter what is going on in our lives, good, bad, in between, frustrating, infuriating, joyful, is it possible, no matter what the circumstances, is it possible for us to give thanks to the Lord? Particularly with an eye to what Paul is talking about here as he framed it with the evil that's pressing in around us and the evil we find inside of us that God constantly is reminding us of. Is it possible to give thanks to God in all circumstances. You know, the writer of Hebrews said this. He said, Jesus, when he's reflecting on the fact that Jesus went outside the camp, he suffered shame, went outside the camp, and we should go outside of the camp to suffer along with him. He says, through him then, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And there's that phrase, a sacrifice of praise. You know, when things are going good, it's not that hard to praise, right? I sat up here this morning and told you about a little girl named Aniston who gave her heart to Christ this week at Bethlehem, and that wasn't hard at all because it was so fun and it was so good. One of the very next people that walks up here is my dad and says he's having open heart surgery on Friday, and he praised God. That's a lot harder. There's some of you in the room right now that are facing really difficult things in your life. 
And I, don't, I say that very generalized. There's some I know about, but there's some I know I don't know about. The sacrifice of praise to God, the writer of Hebrews says, is the fruit, the outcome of lips that acknowledge God in every situation. That acknowledge that God is able to work and do good no matter what is happening around me. That God is able to bring good out of every negative thing. That God is able to turn mourning into dancing. That God is able to take even my praises and make sure the glory and the, and the honor for that is going to him. The sacrifice, notice that's the sacrifice of praise in that case. It's not me that led Annas into the Lord. It's God. The sacrifice of praise is to acknowledge that God is the one who did that good work, not me. Let us offer continually a sacrifice of praise. So to help us understand or see how it can be that our eyes and our mind, our thoughts, our, our focus can be on God and what good he can bring out of everything that's happening, Paul frames this with two pairs of really short, rapid-fire exhortations. One before, one after. One pair before, one pair after. Here's the first pair. Rejoice always. Rejoice always and pray without ceasing. Both of those last words, rejoice at all times and pray with no breaks. Those are the two, those are the two directive words. Rejoice. Find ways of seeing the joy of the Lord in the midst of whatever's happening. And you open that up by going to the next step. Pray. By the, word, the, by the way, the word for pray there is the word prosukamai, which is the form of prayer that it has to do with worship prayer. Not deasis, which is request kind of prayer, but worship prayer. So it is still instructive though. We are to pray. We are to have a conversation with God no matter what's going on. This is how we find ourselves in a place to say, I can give thanks to God in all circumstances. Doesn't matter whether it's good, bad, or in between. Because I'm looking to my father and I'm having a conversation with him about it. I'm letting him know what's happening here. He already knows, but I'm letting him know that I'm aware of what's happening here and wanting to see him move in it. And he's letting me know what he's doing in this. What an unfortunate truth. I say it unfortunate sort of in quotes because it's the beauty of who God is. But what an unfortunate truth that the things that make us grow the most and make us the most holy are usually the most painful things in our lives. Ah, isn't it okay just to be honest with each other and say, I wish it wasn't like that? But it is. It is. You know the truth of this already. It's the thing you celebrate week in and week out. Right? Your salvation. Your salvation is a result of the most beautiful thing happening because of one of the most awful, painful things. Right? The crucifixion, the death of Jesus Christ resulted in one of the most amazing things that ever happened. Not the most, the most amazing thing that ever happened. So it is no different with us, friends. It's no different with us. Rejoice always, 
Pray without ceasing. Stay in connection, in contact with your heavenly Father. Paul gives almost the exact exhortation. Again, Romans 12, this time verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. That's how those two things can happen, by the way. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. The key to that is to being constant in prayer, to having communication with your heavenly Father, to, being ta- to talking to him all the time. Paul would write these well-known words. I'm going to read them for you this morning from Philippians chapter 4. Well-known, beautiful, so encouraging. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And then he says this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, there's both words together, worship and asking, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Give thanks in all circumstances, church. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Here, first of all, That first pair of exhortations, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Here the second one, which comes right on his heels and I think is the crux of it all. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Do not extinguish the work of the Holy Spirit. Do not say no to the Holy Spirit. Do not resist the Holy Spirit. Do not refuse the work of the Holy Spirit. Do not resist or refuse or all those words that is used, the Holy Spirit, when he's speaking to you. I think that's why prophecy is part of this, because that's when God is speaking to us, is revealing things to us by his Holy Spirit. Do not quench him. This is what Paul wrote to the Ephesians, and he put it in a frame of reference that we can understand as we prepare ourselves for the day of Christ's return. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He is your guarantee, the Holy Spirit. He is your deposit. He is the one who will get you safely to heaven on the day of Christ's return. Do not quench him. Do not resist him. Do not shut him down. Do not ignore him. Interesting that Paul uses the word quench, which is to put out a fire, right? Because when John the Baptist was preparing the way for Jesus, guess what he said? He said, after me is coming one who is going to baptize you, not with water, but with the Holy Spirit and fire. Isn't it interesting that on the day of Pentecost, when God kept that promise, what happened? And tongues of fire appeared on everyone's head, right? And they all began to be filled with the Spirit and speak in tongues as God enabled them. Actually, As they continued going through, and the church was born, and they brought this man named Stephen into the fold, and he was powerful, and no one could refute him, and they didn't like him, so they made false charges against him, and even as he was being prepared to be led away, he read this, he gave this long speech litany of of a history lesson, but also of scathing rebuke against those who were about to take his life, and in the middle of that, or towards the end of that, actually, he says this, you stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Say what you will, say what you will about all other things going on. 
for this moment, this morning, in this room, none of that matters except for the question of whether you are allowing the Holy Spirit to work in your life. You know, if we understand that it is our flesh, hear this church, if, you, if we understand that it is our flesh that extinguishes the Holy Spirit, because I think that's what's true. It's me saying, I want to do what I want to do. That's what resists the Holy Spirit. That's what makes me stiff-necked and hard-hearted. If it's our flesh that quenches the Holy Spirit, I believe we must draw the conclusion that it does not matter if it is cold indifference or it is wild excess. Both are quenching the Holy Spirit. Do you hear what I'm saying? It does not matter if it is cold indifference. I will not allow the Holy Spirit to speak to me or to move. I, I don't like that. It's scary. It's outside of my control. I don't like it. That's quenching the Holy Spirit. But so is the other side of that, where my flesh loves to be stirred and have these great things happen and have all this stuff going on, and I begin to overrule what the Holy Spirit is actually doing by what my flesh is doing, also quenching the Holy Spirit. I say that simply because I know. I know. I live with you guys. I know. I know immediately we have alarm bells going off and we're like, blah, 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 blah. please, please this morning, can we agree scripture is true? Can we agree that God gave us his Holy Spirit and that God speaks to us by his Holy Spirit? If so, don't quench him. Don't shut him down, either by not listening by like not allowing it at all, or by going the other direction and going to the excesses that are also your flesh extinguishing or quenching the Holy Spirit. I don't know if this is a good time to say it or not. As your pastor, it is my understanding of Scripture that God does speak to us by His Holy Spirit. He uses the Bible it's his inspired word. It says that about itself. So we know that is true. He uses the Bible to speak to us through the Holy Spirit. He uses the church to speak to us through the Holy Spirit. He sometimes uses our circumstances. I don't think you should rule your life by that. But he does sometimes use our circumstances to speak to us by the Holy Spirit. I believe God does directly speak to us by his Holy Spirit still. I think it comes in the middle of these rails we've just been talking about, right? Test everything. If I think God is saying something to me, what is the outcome of that? Does it match up to this? Does it match up to what my brothers and sisters in the church are saying, are, are agreeing with that's what God is like? Is the outcome, if I start walking down that path, is the out, just be, can we just be honest and willing to look at the outcome in my life? Is it making me more loving, more like Christ, more holy, more righteous, or is it making me more arrogant? Is it making me more prideful? Is it making me, I don't know, more sinful? Sometimes in our culture, sometimes in our world, in our churches, sometimes the people that are the most filled with the Holy Spirit, their lives look the most unholy. That's quenching the Holy Spirit, friends. But so is sitting there and not doing anything or sitting there and not allowing Him to speak at all. Hopefully, what I'm communicating to you this morning is not something that's frustrating you 
or I've hopefully I've communicated clearly enough. Please understand. I think I've said this before. I'll say it again this morning. I have, I have no, I want to be, <laughs> I want to be as, as truthful as I, as I can be, as often as I can be. Please understand, I don't have everything perfectly figured out. I've had conversations with some of you. I don't, we probably don't all agree and look at it the exact same way. My understanding or my reading of this text, he began out here talking about good and evil, both that's being done to us and what's inside of us, and drew us into the middle and said, rejoice in all things, be in constant communication with your Father in heaven, don't quench what the Holy Spirit's doing, what God is saying to you through the Word, through people around you, how to respond to what's going on around you and how to respond to what's going on inside of you. And in the middle of all that, what I'm really driving toward, the point of that is not the stuff I've just said, because what I'm really driving toward is Paul's statement that he says here. So that we would be a people who are able to give thanks in all circumstances for Christ, for this, for, just read the verse four. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That you see the good and the bad and all the stuff that God is doing and you're continually pointing to him and saying, this is what God is doing whether it's something good or something bad. In the words of Job, right? Job said these words. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. But I will choose to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. No surprise, church. You've heard me say this before. You'll hear me say it again, most likely. No surprise. This is a difficult task. This calls us to a standard that is higher than we readily achieve. In fact, I think that we achieve it all unless the Holy Spirit is working in us, which is why it is our, my joy, I hope it's yours as well, but our joy every week to end our sermons out of Thessalonians with the, uh, the blessing that we're getting to in the next message, but the, uh, the blessing that Paul imparts and I've been inviting you to read with me. So would you read again this morning with me these words that will enable us through God's mighty working in our lives as we submit to the Holy Spirit, enable us to give thanks in all circumstances, good, bad, and in between. Read it with me. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. God, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that you speak to us by it. You instruct us. And yes, God, we thank you even in the, the, the difficulty of use, what we use our phrase, you stepping on our toes, reminding us how easy it is for us to respond selfishly to people around us and how easy it is for us to dismiss the sinfulness within us but God, you exhort us that when you speak to us, that when you correct us, when you discipline us, you do so as a father who loves us for you want us to share in your holiness. So that when you do that, when the Holy Spirit is active, when, when words uh, of inspiration from you, either from your scripture come and correct us or from other people come and correct us and they step on our toes, so to speak, that we turn to you and say, God, I rejoice for you are making me more like Christ. And though it hurts, though it's not fun, I don't enjoy 
when it's pointed out to me that I'm not uh, as nice as I thought I was or as selfless as I thought I was, though that doesn't feel good, I would much rather know now, Father, so that I am ready and kept blameless for the coming of Jesus Christ. And I want to surrender to you, surrender to your Holy Spirit, surrender to what Jesus did for me by following the path that he has trod, by giving myself, expending myself for the sake of those around me. God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you that you care enough, love enough, love us enough that you correct us and lead us into holiness. I pray. I pray for myself. I pray for my family. I pray for our church. I pray for the church in America. I pray for the global church. But I pray for us here this morning, especially God, that we would yield to the teaching of your word. That we would form our lives around what your Holy Spirit is telling us that we would surrender to you so that we might be found ready for your son, Jesus Christ, when he returns. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.